Kia ora koutou. Uh, this is uh, Bruce White, and uh, welcome back to the third instalment of our podcast, which now has an acronym, SOAP, yep. Scholarly and Open Access Publishing. That's right. And uh, with me is... <laughs> Kia ora, everyone. Um, this is Amanda Kuno again, um, uh, Manager of the Institutional Repository Massey Research Online here at Massey University. Kia ora, it's Catherine Werber again, um, subject librarian. Um, happy again to, to join the team and chat about what are we talking about this week? Good, good point. What are we talking about this week? Uh, we're talking okay. about, yep. oh, I quite like the biological metaphors that we've got going okay. on. The ecosystem, the scholarly ecosystem, um, the anatomy of the journal article, as well as editing and peer review and discovery and citation. So quite a full full podcast today but we're going to break it up aren't we so okay yeah 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 we realized we were i said yeah 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 three times well done <laughs> that's your quota that's my quota okay uh we uh had, had a bit of trouble because of the length of our of our um, sessions of our episodes or whatever we call them breaking the files up so we're going to cut commercial breaks every 15 minutes this yep. time yep uh, yeah, so it's the scholarly journal in the academic ecosystem. Mm. And you'll be pleased to know the Scholarly and Open Access Publishing Podcast. We still haven't got to open access, but <laughs> here with time. us we will. But we're calling it scholarly as well. So that's what we're talking about. Um, this ecosystem metaphor has become a bit of a cliche applied to academic publishing. But I think... There are some good things about it. Mm-hmm. Such as? Such as the fact that every species within an ecosystem has its niche. Mm-hmm. And these niches may change from time to time. So uh, academics, say, have a number of niches within the within the ecosystem. They may be authors. They may be um, peer, reviewers, peer reviewers. They may be editors. Some, sometimes they go off and become publishers, academic publishers. Uh, librarians have a niche which has changed a lot over the time. They were the gatekeepers for the system for, for a long time. Now they've been displaced from that. Um, publishers have a have a role in the ecosystem, which, as we saw earlier, has grown a lot mm-hmm. over the time. And publishers have changed. And now they're coming under new challenges. And this is because species within, within an ecosystem compete with one another and also cooperate at times. Mm-hmm. So there, there are synergies there as well as competition. The system is not a machine. <laughs> this, I think, is, is what makes it an ecosystem uh, in which a given input has a predictable output. And this is what we're finding with open access publishing, that some of the outputs have, some of the outcomes have been quite unpredictable and surprising. Uh, and if people thought that open access uh, meant that not so much money would go out of universities and research institutions to publishers. This is not proven to be the case. Exactly. So that's been a surprising outcome. Um, and also that the ecosystem, the, 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 an ecosystem is always part of a larger system, a larger ecosystem. Uh, you know, universities, research institutions are embedded in government, they're mm-hmm. embedded in economies and education systems and so on. And these change. And an example we could think of would be research assessment which has been a big thing over the last 20 years mm. that was not so big, say, 20 years before that. Mm. Uh, people talked about publish or perish, 
back in the 70s and 80s, but they didn't know they were alive in those days. <laughs> and, and then also, Bruce, don't forget that um, the larger system that publishers are part of are market forces. Yeah. And the whole yeah. um, commercial enterprise. Yeah. So. Not, not to mention the technology. Yes. The exactly. technology has been a huge driver of change that has come entirely from without. Okay. So, we're still looking at the scholarly journal. Excuse me, just taking a swig of water. Um, and by the 1990s, we're continuing our history now, it had evolved to be quite a kind of well-understood artefact with a widely recognised role. First thing was, it was an immutable record of research questions of studies and results. One of the reasons it was immutable because it was in paper. Yes. So whatever whatever went into print couldn't be changed, <laughs> and you couldn't unsay something. Hmm. Uh, it had a reporting function. It had a reporting, but but also a um, what's the word? It's the record thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It had the minutes. Reporting. The minutes of science. Is that what? Yeah. No. That's, yeah. Yeah. Yes. No, that's what it's called. Well yeah. done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, but you couldn't change it, and that made people quite cautious. <laughs> yes. So in itself, it was a uh, it was a it was a discipline. Yes. With electronic stuff, it, the possibility of retraction is there. Uh, that there are rules around retraction and so on. Uh, but we find with with some journals now, electronic journals, the possibility is there for them to disappear entirely, or to be made to. To be seen to have disappeared or to become inaccessible to people. And perhaps we'll touch on this point again a bit later when we talk about fakery, science fakery and unethical yeah. science. Yeah, yeah that's yes. right. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. yeah. And and you know, there's nothing probably more humiliating than having having a retraction published, for example, yes. of your work, uh, which is a which is a criticism because there it's very public yes. there for everyone to see. So it was a mutable record. Uh, the double-blind peer review system uh, was seen to, to be a guarantee of validity. Uh, it was it was speedy. Uh, I've said relatively speedy here. Um, dissemination of research because you didn't have to wait for a book. I mean, you know, we can argue back and forth as to whether journals are slow, and at certain points they have become very slow. But no, they are faster than books. Faster than books, yeah. <laughs> it's a relative. And it gets the same message out to everyone at more or less the same time. Even in New Zealand, it would be within six weeks of other other parts of the world. And we've looked at how it created research communities, mm -hmm. kept people together, kept people in touch all around the world, um, conferred recognition and prestige, on scholars by having your work published in a well-regarded journal allowed people to make a name for themselves, independent of their institution, which is a really important thing about about kind of the academic and research that, world. That's one thing that I always remember um, that Kate Stanton, um, bless you, Kate, talked about with her her library research was when she discovered that actually academics have much more of a loyalty to their discipline and their community mm. rather yeah. than. Yeah, to the institution. institution. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's right. 
Um, and, and yet, and yet, the institutions often bask in the reflected glory indeed. of the um, no, achievement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. But they pay us, <laughs> <laughs> so they're allowed to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But but there's there's a big prestige economy yes. going on there, yes. uh, which which like all economies involves money as well, and we all like to eat. Um, Abstracting and indexing tools. We could have an hour on these, but we won't. Mm. Going back to late 19th century, and again, chemical abstracts started in 1907 uh, with a relatively small volume covering all the publishing for four months of the year and then ballooned down to this enormous uh, printed thing. But abstracting and indexing tools meant that people could find out what was happening. Mm. So you didn't have to look at just one or two journals or scour through things for hours. Uh, you could go to chemical abstracts, biological abstracts, historical abstracts, mm -hmm. uh, all of these things, and find out what the research was. And also, this made gaps in the research literature clear. Because if you could identify everything that had been published on a subject, it was, it was easy to identify what was going to be novel. Yes, yes. And that's a... You know, that's a really important feature of any sort of study because you've yes. got to know. Yeah. I think I actually started getting into librarianship as those printed abstracts and indexes were being phased out. Yes. It was, it's, for me, it would be a bit of a lost art to, to use yeah. those printed ones. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Well, I got in just as I was on the first round of online databases. Right. Before you'd ever heard the word internet, we used to phone up Palo Alto for <laughs> biological abstracts and things like that. Cost a bomb. Cost a bomb. <laughs> so, this what we've described is a kind of abstracted, ideal, idealised version of the scholarly journal. But those are the those are the ideals that against which it should be measured. Mm -hmm. Those are the criteria, and there's a lot of debate as to how successful it's been in achieving these goals. Yes, but it's widely recognised. That, um, that that's what it's supposed to do, disseminate valid research. So I'm going now and look at just what a journal article looks like. So the article has to be firmly embedded in past research. So there's no good just having a really bright idea. <laughs> you have to have done the reading and know um, what you're talking about. It has to be novel has to add something to existing knowledge, existing research. And that's where the thing is about identifying uh, research yeah. gaps. Yeah. Uh, and it has to be significant, non-trivial. So we can't just say, I've discovered this wonderful new thing. Um, <laughs> only of interest uh, to me. <laughs> yes, only, only, only of interest to me. Or entirely random, you know, like um, I could, I could um, measure the behaviour of birds in my backyard, uh, uh, but unless I, unless I showed that that is somehow related to the behaviour of birds in the world as a whole, or even in the neighbourhood as a whole, it wouldn't be terribly interesting. So, but the, the, even the significant or non-trivial thing becomes interesting as it's possible to publish more and more, um, and you get overlaps and you get things which go over the same area 
and so on. All of that becomes becomes uh, re crit relevant. Critical mass, yeah, really. critical, yeah. Mm. That's right, critical mass, sorry. So an article consists of the following elements, and it's an introduction which has to make it absolutely clear what it's seeking to establish, why it's important, and ideally this has, has you know, one or more research questions uh, that it's setting out to answer. It has a literature review, which contains the, the past literature on the topic. It's important both to enhance the credibility of the work itself, also to give deserved credit to other scholars. So there's, a, there's an element of, of um, recognition, element of prestige payback there. References also appear throughout the work and so on. So um, referencing with this forms a, I've called it here, vital form of energy transfer within this ecosystem. Nice metaphor. Yeah. Energy yeah, I really like yeah. that. That was yeah. really nice. Yeah. Okay. Energy transfer, people. Yep. Okay. Yeah, you heard it first here, folks. <laughs> it has a methodology section which sets out to describe how the questions are going to be answered. The intention is of this is to make it clear why the results would be valid and also to make it possible for others to test those results. Now, there's huge debate as to whether this is done and there are there are problems these days with replication, replicability of things, because the whole idea of something being, particularly in science, is that the same thing should happen more than once. Yes. Uh, and this, this becomes uh, a major issue. So this is why you've got to say, this is exactly what we did. So if you're going to do this, this is how you would do it. And then application of the methodology is going to result in some form of data. It may be numbers, it may be some written observations, for example, or, or all sorts of things, but it will result in some results. <laughs> result in results, I like that. Um, <laughs> but often we refer to the results as data. Then there's, then there's a section um, which describes what was actually found. So it, it, um, it summarises the data doesn't necessarily, it doesn't give all of the data, but it will summarise the data in the form of graphs, tables, or discussion, or something. So if you're doing if you're doing a study where you're going interviewing people, you won't list all of the interviews, but you will take parts out of them. Yes. Or you may say, you know, nine percent of respondents did this or that. So often result sections are numbers, but they don't have to be. Then there's a discussion section which draws out the significance of the data in relation to the research questions, and then there's a conclusion which sums it all up and tries to say what it was uh, that significant that was found. And that's an article, and it's generally between five and 7,000 um, words in length, and uh, usually you don't read it all. <laughs> I, th I think this is, this is probably a guilty secret that... You know, you read you read the the introduction to see what it's about. You read the conclusion to see what they found out. You might go and have a look at so if it's important to you. You go and have a look at the other stuff, but but you'll move on. Okay, so we're going to go to a commercial break now um, for uh, AAA used cars, and uh, <laughs> we'll be back to you shortly.